Hello, everyone. Students, guests, and everyone else, thank you for being here. Tonight, we have gathered to listen to one of the brightest beacons of science, France de Waal, by far the well-known and the well-regarded primatologist alive. This program is sponsored by Hamid and Christina Mugaddam program in Iranian studies, which is a program on campus with the goal of fostering interdisciplinary studies of Iran as a civilization and also providing about 85 million Iranians living inside Iran and hundreds of thousands of Iranians living in diaspora a chance to be exposed to new ideas in arts, sciences, and technology. Tonight's event will be edited and broadcasted, and parts of it will be available online for viewers to share with their friends. Once again, we thank Hamid and Christina Mugaddam family for their very generous support for tonight's program to be possible. Tonight's program will be the first in a series of talks to highlight the important role that biology can play in societally relevant discussions. Tonight's program is about empathy and the evolution of goodness, and the next lecture to be announced soon will be about biology or pathology of psychopathy and evil. Tonight's lecture is a special event of its own for several reasons. First and foremost, because it features one of the greatest writers of our time, Franz de Waal. It's also unique because it closes the gap between science and humanities. By broadcasting Franz de Waal's and his colleagues' empirical scientific biological observations, from primates and other mammals, we hope to bring a voice of biology and science into the current discussions within the community of arts and humanities. By showing empirical evidence that goodness and fairness are shared by other mammals that our anthropocentric ancestors thought were inferior, we are hoping to share the view that morality must have evolved millions of years before any religion or God on the planet. Franz de Waal's voice will provide a perfect platform for people in religious societies like Iran, where fanatic dogmas may have eroded the possibility of believing in goodness and morality without adhering to some of the dogmas from the Middle Ages. Franz de Waal's voice provides the perfect space for these people and many of us to believe in goodness and morality without necessarily adhering to any religious rules. I thank Frank, uh, Franz for his travel from Atlanta to join us this evening. His life journey has actually taken him very, very far. To quote from Wikipedia, as we always do, Franz was born in the Netherlands and studied at several Dutch universities and was trained as a zoologist and ethologist with Professor Jan van Hoof, a well-known expert of emotional facial expressions in primates. He then worked in a large colony of chimpanzees 
at the Arnhem Zoo, and based on his observations, he published his first book, Chimpanzee Politics, a must-read for all congressmen, according to some of our politicians. <laughs> Deval's work inspired the field of primate cognition that several decades later has flourished around themes of cooperation, altruism, and fairness. I have five more minutes. No, I'm kidding. He and his students have pioneered studies on how behavior is culturally transmitted in primates, whether elephants recognize themselves in mirrors, or how primates react to unequal reward decisions, how well primates spontaneously cooperate, and whether bonobo orphans are emotionally affected by their trauma. The most achievement of France de Waal is that when he speaks, everyone listens. And that is why we are here. And for those of you who haven't seen the stand outside, France uh, has written this very new book that has not been published yet. It is available. This is the first place it is available at. And we hope some of you will enjoy uh, reading it. So please join me to welcome France de Waal. Hello, I'm very happy to be here, and I thank the Iranian Studies Program to invite me to Stanford. And my new book is available. <laughs> you know, it's not just in the Middle East that we have these dogmas running around. It's because um, I'm going to give you the first quote here. It comes from Ben Carson. <laughs> ben Carson, a famous um, Republican candidate, one, one of those who has disappeared from view. But he, he, said, he doesn't believe in evolution. He says, if you accept evolutionary theory, you dismiss ethics, you don't have to abide by a set of moral codes, you determine your own conscience based on your own desires. And of course, the assumption here is that your own desires are not good. You don't have any good desires. You have only bad ones. But this is sort of still the view. And uh, if you look at the views of morality, uh, they're all basically top down. So it started with God, God gave us morality, and very often, since I'm interested in the evolution of morality, that's what people say, it, it comes from God. And then uh, later, uh, after the Renaissance, we got, it comes from philosophy, it comes from logic and reason, that gives us morality, and, and then we apply these principles in our society. And then more recently, Sam Harris, one of the neo-atheists, says it comes from science. Science is going to give us morality. Now, I'm a scientist. I don't trust scientists to tell us what is moral and immoral. They have made too many errors in the past, and uh, scientists cannot be trusted with this. It's something that the whole society needs to decide. And we are now basically in a phase where we're looking more at bottom-up approaches to morality. We're looking at neuroscience. We're looking at evolution. And this whole idea is that that morality comes from sort of, sort of reasoning process or a religious process, I think is, is um, wrong-headed, basically. And we're much more now, this is sort of the Kantian view, we're much more now in the Humean, David Hume's view, who believe that the moral sentiments are basically at the root of morality. Now, in biology, we've had that whole debate also, strangely enough. Why would you have that in biology? But we have had that. And so in biology, we, we think, of course, of natural selection as a very nasty process, the struggle for life, and there's nothing good about it, really. But um, 
Struggle for life is actually a metaphor. It's not really a good description of uh, natural selection because it's not as if animals always decide who survives by fighting with each other. If, if you have a better hearing or better eyesight or better immune system, that's also survival. And, and, and actually, most of natural selection is on that kind of characteristics. But anyway, it has given us two views of morality. One view is that since nature is nasty, uh, only human nature can also only be nasty. And morality can only be a veneer. Morality is something that we put on top of that. So deep down, we're all bad. And on top of that, we have managed to be reasonably good. And then the other view is, of course, that, oh, wait, 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 I'm going back here. The other view is that natural selection can produce anything. It has produced highly social species, such as elephants and dolphins and humans. And it also can produce uh, morality. And so that, that would be the view that morality comes out of natural selection and out of evolution. So the first view, which I call veneer theory, comes from Huxley. Strangely enough, Huxley is known as Darwin's bulldog. He was a big defender of evolutionary theory, and he was much nastier in that regard than, uh, than Darwin himself. And he believed that morality could not be explained by evolution, a bit the Ben Carson view here. Uh, and so he would say morality is a departure from nature. It's uniquely human, and it's calculated. If, if you're moral, it's because you think it, your calculation is just going to be better. And his big metaphor was the gardener in the garden. This, this is actually the garden of my father-in-law in France. And, and if you make a garden like this, you're busy the whole day to keep it under control. And that was the metaphor that Huxley used. He said, human nature tries to get out of control. Human nature is bad and, and tries to make you do all sorts of things. And we're fighting the whole day to keep, it, uh, keep a lid on it. Uh, and that's basically what morality does. So these are quotes from that literature in the 70s and 80s where here, scratch an altruist and watch a hypocrite bleed. This was the most cited statement in that literature of the 70s, uh, which basically said that you cannot trust anyone who's kind or who's altruistic because it cannot be true. It's not something that, that naturally is produced. This is a quote from Richard Dawkins, the last line of his book, The Selfish Gene. So he gives us a whole book that tells us that we are the slaves of our genes. We carry out their programs. We have basically no choice. And then at the end, the last line, he says, we alone on Earth uh, can rebel against the tyranny of the selfish replicators. So we can throw all those genes out of the window, basically. We don't really need them. We can decide whatever we want to decide. So that's really contradictory, but, but that was in order to save that sort of idea that we are moral beings while our genes tell us otherwise. So I'm going to give you a little Monty Python sketch, which summarizes this view. What you have here is a banker on the right who doesn't know what altruism is. He has no concept of altruism, and he's approached by someone who wants money for the orphanage. He wants one pound for the orphanage. Can you just give me the pan? Yes, but you, you see, I don't know what it's for. Well, it's for the orphans. Yes. It's a gift. A what? <laughs> a gift. Oh, a gift! A tax dodge! No, 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 no. No, 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 well, that's it. No, 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 I don't follow this at all. I mean, I'm, I don't want to seem stupid, but it looks to me as though I'm a pound down on the whole deal. 
Oh, yes, you are. I am. Well, what is my incentive to give you the power? Well, the incentive is to make the orphans happy. Happy? <laughs> You're quite sure you've got this right. <laughs> yes, lots of people give me money. What, just like that? Oh, yes, must be sick. <laughs> uh, I don't suppose you could give me a list of their names and addresses? <laughs> no, I'll just go up to them in the street and ask. Good Lord. That's the most exciting new idea I've heard in years. So the key phrase is here, what is my incentive? Everything needs to have an incentive, otherwise why would you do it? And so that was the view in the 70s and 80s, that's only 40 years ago, uh, the, the age of Reagan and, and Thatcher and so on. Everything had to be explained by selfishness. It's something that after 2008, after the crisis of 2008, we've forgotten about because we don't trust that system anymore. But people had a lot of confidence in a system of society that is based on pure selfishness. Now, so this is my uh, visualization of uh, veneer theory. This is human nature, and at the core, we are very bad. That's what Carson said. Uh, around it, we're not good. And then we have a little bit of morality around that. It's a very pessimistic view, and I've never shared it uh, in any way, because I think it's, it's basically, it describes a psychopath. That's really, really it says hum humans are all psychopaths. So fortunately, Darwin didn't think like that. So Darwin was much smarter than his followers. And uh, he said, uh, morality is a product of evolution. It's continuous with what we see in other animals. And it's based in the emotions. He, he had read Adam Smith and, and David Hume, and he was very affected by their views. So here you have a quote from Darwin, where he says, any animal, whatever, uh, endowed with well-marked social instincts would inevitably acquire a moral sense if that animal has the intellectual powers of us. And so Darwin saw continuity, he talked about sympathy and empathy, and I'm gonna mention sympathy and empathy in the animal kingdom. So the topics I'm gonna go over, and from now on I'm gonna speak about animals mostly, the topics I'm gonna go over are the continuities that Darwin talked about. There's a lot of continuities between humans and other species in the domain of morality, and they have to do with empathy, with reconciliation, with altruism, with fairness, and so on. So let me start with reconciliation, which is at the core, because what is a moral system other than a system that creates harmony and cooperation within society? That's, that's really what morality asks us to do, is to put our own self-interests in the service to some degree of society. And so conflict resolution is a very big part of moral systems. And I discovered very long ago when I was a student that chimpanzees reconcile after fights. So here you have two males and after a fight, and, and they end up in a tree and one of them holds out his hand and begs the other for a contact. And, and a second after this picture, they kiss and embrace, and that's a reconciliation. And when I found that, people didn't know what to do with it because at that time, everything was explained in terms of conflict and winning and losing and so on, and this was something else. So I defined reconciliation as a friendly reunion after a fight. And if you define it this way, you see them all the time. So here you have a, a sequence of it. This is a male chimp who attacks a female, and the female comes back to him 10 minutes later, and then she offers her hand for a hand kiss. That's where our hand kiss comes from. No, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> this is, I'm just seeing if you're still awake. I, I think our hand kiss is probably a cultural invention. 
And this is the mouth-to-mouth -mouth kiss, which is typical of all the reconciliations in chimps. And since chimps are so human-like in their behavior, um, uh, that's maybe why it was discovered in, in that species, but actually we now know that reconciliation is not limited to them at all. So these are monkeys. Monkeys very different from the apes. You are all basically apes. Monkeys are, have tails and so on. And this is um, uh, stumptail monkeys. And what you see here is, is a present. One of them presents, the other one holds the hip. We call it a whole bottom. And uh, that's the ritual by which they reconcile. And then the big difference actually between the monkeys and the apes is that apes cannot reconcile without eye contact. So, so they need to, to look each other in the eyes. Just as you, if you go to, let's say you have a fight with your boss and you go to his office and you apologize and you want to reconcile with your boss and your boss keeps staring in his coffee or looking at the ceiling, you're not going to feel reconciled, I can assure you. So the apes and humans, we need eye contact for these things. That's also why email doesn't really do the job, I think. So this is the way we measure it. I will throw in a few data points on occasion, but the way we measure it is we, if we look for 10 minutes after a fight between two monkeys, do they get together in a friendly way? And that's called the post-conflict observation. And as you see, about 50% of the pairs of opponents of these monkeys, they get together after a fight in a friendly way. They groom each other or something like that. Uh, and this is what happens in control observations where they had no fight. The same two monkeys, they had no fight, and it's much less. So it's, this is exactly the opposite of what I learned as a student. As a student, I learned that aggression drives individuals apart. Aggression is a dispersive mechanism, and what we see actually is that aggression brings individuals together. They're more often together after fights than without fights. Sort of interesting that I discovered that because I'm from a family of six boys. <laughs> and so... I've never looked at aggression the way I was taught about aggression. It was the, aggression was an asocial, an antisocial mechanism. And, and I, I looked at aggression as just part of life because uh, fights were a daily occurrence in my family. Then we found reconciliation in goats and hyenas and dolphins and elephants, all sorts of animals. And now we have reached the point that if you find an animal a social animal that doesn't reconcile after fights, we're going to be very surprised. We're going to ask you, how is that possible? How do they maintain their society? How do they maintain their relationships if they don't reconcile after fights? There's only one species that has been tested where they have not found it, and that's an animal that many of you have at home. It's a domestic cat. <laughs> now, I'm a big cat lover, but I'm still waiting for the magical moment where they will reconcile after a fight, but that's not... You know, they're solitary hunters and they probably don't need it. This is what happens if you do the same observations in the schoolyard with children, which we did, and it has been done actually all over the world. It has been done in Japan, in Russia, in Europe, in the US, and there's interesting cultural differences. For example, Japanese children reconcile much more than American children. And the, the reason that the investigators give to me is that the Japanese teachers don't interfere. So in, in the US, as soon as two kids have a big fight, the teacher tries to stop it and tries to make them apologize and all these things. Japanese teachers stay out of the whole thing. And I think the, the kids learn better how to deal with conflict that way than when you interfere all the time. This is a human reconciliation. So this is um, a photographer who acted a bit like a primatologist who took pictures of the reconciliation between Obama and McCain. Obama had criticized the report by McCain and, and he basically lost. Uh, it was in the Washington Post and all of this and he basically, he went to McCain to apologize and to shake his hand. And what I like is the facial expression on Obama. He has put air under his lips. You can try to do that. It's called the bulging lips face. 
You put air under your lips. And um, male chimpanzees do that when they confront each other. So they, they try to intimidate each other. They have all their hair up and they stand, they're walking bipedally. They try to intimidate each other. And uh, the male who withdraws and probably regrets that he started this is the one who has the bulging lips face. So, so it's a face of submission or regret. It's very common in human politicians. So here, <laughs> I, I, have an, I have an enormous collection of the bulging lips face because each time there's a scandal or something, like, like you remember Clinton had something to regret here. So each time politicians regret what they did, they have this face uh, and it's found all over the place and, and female politicians don't have that. I always ask my German audiences to send me because they have a prominent female politician, but females just don't do it. It's, it's either because women never regret something. <laughs> that's, that's a possibility. I've noticed that. Uh, or, or they just don't have the facial expression because I've never seen it. And so I have an enormous collection for males, but none for the females. And I, actually, who was the tennis player? Sarapova, who was recently uh, with the doping scandal. No bulging lips face, unfortunately. I'm still waiting for it. Okay, let me now say a few things about bonobos and I will return to bonobos later. Bonobos are equally close to us as chimps and you, you have heard of course many f stories about chimpanzees and how chimpanzees are violent and they kill each other and, and all these things. Bonobos are just the opposite. Bonobos are sort of the, the hippies of the primate world sometimes also known as the politically correct primate because they, they have female dominance and they have sectional combinations of individuals and so on. Uh, but the bonobo is really interesting from the standpoint of empathy and reconciliation. So first, first let me show you a little video that has nothing to do with this topic. But I want to show it because um, it has to do with the topic of my new book, which is about primate intelligence and animal intelligence. And so what you're going to see here is just to show you the intelligence of the apes. Let me go back. And what you will see is, is a female bonobo, Lizala, who's, who's going to show how, how smart a bonobo is. So Lizala puts a big rock on her back and starts walking with it for about half a kilometer. Can I have less sound, maybe a little bit less sound? And, and Zana Clay, my postdoc, she started filming this because we always assume with the, with, with the apes that everything they do has a purpose. You're not gonna walk with a heavy rock like this on your back if you don't have a reason for it. Uh, and so she's gonna walk for half a kilometer with this thing. And Zana is following her and of course doesn't know what this is for. She also has a baby, as you see, on her back. <laughs> so this is in a sanctuary in Kinshasa, which is basically a forest. And we've cut it down, so, it's, so it, it, you're not gonna see the whole half kilometer that she walks. Now she drops the rock and she picks up a few things. Now she picks it up again and she, she continues her walk. And now she goes to the only place in the whole forest 
where there's a concrete slab. So the only place with a hard surface. And when she gets there, you will see what happens. She drops the rock. And she, what she has taken with her are nuts. So she's going to use the rock to crack the nuts. Now think about this. She picks up her tool, a very heavy tool, 10 minutes or 15 minutes before she even has nuts in her hand and before she even is anywhere close to the place where she can do the cracking. So I'm very interested in what it's called time travel in, in, in the jargon of cognitive science. She's able to look ahead and plan ahead um, and, and uh, there's also experiments on whether they can think back to specific events and so on. And, and so there's all this research going on which has to do with consciousness because I'm not sure how you can plan ahead a sequence like this without some, some form of consciousness. And so uh, the apes are a wonderful example of that. So to say something about bonobos, this is the evolutionary tree that we had in the 1960s. And humans were completely separate, 25 million years separate from the apes. And everyone was very happy with this tree. It was based on an anthropological, uh, like, you know, um, skulls and bones and teeth and things like that. Then the DNA came along. The DNA placed us right in the middle of the apes. We're really not different from apes. In fact, according to the DNA, a chimp is more like us than a chimp is like a gorilla. Now, people had a lot of trouble with this, but this is now the accepted tree. And we now look at uh, the anthropological tree as very much sort of influenced by human biases. We, we like to think that we are special. And so the anthropologist would say, well, we humans, we walk on two legs. That's very special. But you know, chickens walk on two legs. <laughs> I, I'm not so impressed by it. But they were very impressed by that. And so they, they would hype up all these things that we do that are so special and um, they're probably not so special. And so if you look at bonobos, actually, when they stand upright, bonobos have longer legs than chimps and most other apes. Uh, they look almost exactly like Ardipithecus, which is an ancestral type to us. Ardipithecus had the same feet, had the same body proportions, had the same brain size. Basically, bonobos, even though they're not habitual bipedal walkers, they look exactly like Ardipithecus. And so bonobo is a very interesting species to compare us with because bodily, at least, it's very similar to the human species. Now, this is how bonobos make up after fights. They do everything with sex, and so they also reconcile with sex. And they do that in all combinations of individuals. So it's sort of the make love, not war primate. Male-male, uh, male-female, female-female, all combinations occur because in all combinations there, there are potential conflicts. I'll show you a little sequence of this. This is a little fight that happens in the river at that sanctuary and you will see a quick fight and a very quick reconciliation. <laughs> And that's, and that's it. People think always that bonobos um, have sex all the time for hours long, but 10 seconds is a long time for bonobos. <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's more you have to look at it as a handshake, like a genital handshake, basically. <laughs> so in the context of all this, I, I started to think about religion 
And, and so in my book, The Bonobo and the Atheist, I, I relate my ideas about the evolution of morality to, to my ideas of, about the role of religion. I think religion came later, much later. Our current religions are a couple of thousand years old. That's really nothing for the biologist. Uh, and so I think human morality is much older. It goes back to primate morality, so to speak. So human morality is maybe a million years old, and our current religions are a couple of thousand years old. And so religion has maybe an effect, maybe even a positive effect on, on morality. That's all very well possible, but it's not the source of it. So I look at, at morality basically as based on two pillars. One is empathy and compassion. So the Dalai Lama is very big on the compassion part, of course, and, and says that's the core of um, morality. And if you, if you try to think of human morality without empathy, I don't think it's possible. I, I, if you're not interested in others and affected by the emotions of others, I'm not sure how you're going to be a moral being. You're going to be a psychopath, basically. And then the, the other one is reciprocity, which relates to cooperation. Reciprocity, and that relates also to justice and fairness, because if you have a system based on reciprocity, you're going to pay attention to who, how much do you get, how much do I get, and so on. And, and so you get justice and fairness in the system. So that's, I think, the two pillars of human morality. And, and, and my research, to a large degree, has consisted of checking which ones of these elements we can find in other primates. Now, empathy, this is a dictionary definition of empathy. And it says the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. So it has the two components. It has the understanding part, which is the cognitive one, and the feeling part, which is the emotional one. And in psychology, I'm a biologist, but I teach in psychology. In psychology, they always emphasize the cognitive. They love the cognitive. And so they, if you ask a psychologist, what is empathy? He will say it's that you put yourself in the shoes of somebody else. You imagine their situation. But you know, that, that is probably something that comes much later. You're not going to tell me that a one-year-old child has no empathy. A one-year-old child is affected by the emotions of others very clearly, but cannot really imagine the situation necessarily of another. So um, the first channel that I think of, of empathy is what I call the, the body channel, which is synchronization with others, mimicry of facial expression. So for example, you talk with someone who is sad. You will have a sad expression on your face. If the person is crying, you may be crying. You talk with someone who's happy and laughing, you will be laughing. And all these things have been tested out. It's called motor mimicry. And motor mimicry is the basis of these mood transfers that we have between individuals. And that starts actually very early in life. It starts on day one of life. So you can, and people have tested that. Babies cry when they hear other babies cry. Uh, sometimes in an airplane, you have 10 babies who cry. So, so that's an emotional contagion. People have tested it against other sounds. It's not just the noise. It, it, they've tested it against vacuum cleaners and cars and screaming chimpanzees. No. Babies cry when they hear other babies cry. And girl babies do it already more than boy babies. So the sex difference that is universal in the human species and in many other mammals uh, is already there. So that's emotional contagion, and that's at the core of empathy. And then on top of that, we have a more complex, more cognitive, uh, where you, 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 you draw a line between yourself and the other. Now you understand that the emotions of the other are not necessarily your situation. So you draw a line, and that allows you to take the perspective of somebody else. And that's something that comes in much later. Uh, also in evolution, I would say, comes in much later. So we study the body synchronization by looking at the contagiousness of yawning. 
we yawn when other people yawn. And since many animals yawn, you can study that in many animals. Lizards yawn, fish yawn, birds yawn. Yawning is all over the place. And no one knows exactly why we yawn, actually. So we, we show a chimpanzee on an iPod videos of yawning chimpanzees. So chimpanzees show yawn contagion. It has also been done with dogs, and it's something you can do at home if you have an empathic dog, at least. Uh, you can try to see if the dog yawns when you yawn. There's also a high probability that you yawn when the dog yawns. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, people have done that kind of thing. And what we find in these studies, and this is a, a general characteristic of empathy, is that it's a very much an in-group phenomenon. If you show the chimps videos of chimps that they know, which is the in-group, the ones that they live with, they're going to be very affected. If you show them chimps that they don't know, they've never seen before, they're not affected by that. And so that's a general characteristic of all empathy studies in, in rodents, in chimpanzees, everywhere, is that uh, um, empathy is very biased, biased towards individuals who are similar and familiar. Uh, and, th and that has a flip side, of course is that we have very little empathy for strangers. We have little empathy for people who are very different from us. So that's the negative side of it. Now, in bonobos, we started doing studies on consolation behavior. And consolation, it gets us much closer to what you normally would call empathy. So consolation is also the first studies on human children were consolation studies. So the first studies were done by Carolyn Zahn-Waxler, uh, who was a scientist who tested children. So what she would do is she would ask a family member to cry and then see how young children responded. And even two-year-old children, they approached this person and they touched them, they stroked their face, and, and if they can talk, they ask them how things are going and so on. And she called it empathic concern. Girls doing it more than boys, she found also. Um, and so th that's, that's an expression of empathy in, in humans. And it's something that we see all the time in, in our apes. So, for example, here you have uh, a, chimp, uh, a bonobo who has lost a fight, and another one comes over to embrace. Here uh, is another one, uh, a, a case of consolation. So, consolation behavior is very common um, in, in the bonobos and chimpanzees. And so, we did a study of it, and that's how, uh, for that, it needs to be common. I'm going to show you a little video of this. This is a bonobo baby of maybe three or four years old. Bonobos have a very slow development, so she's a baby still. And she's being bitten by a female on the left. And you will see what happens after that. Bandon, you just uh, attacked Malay. So this is consolation behavior. And since in humans, we call it empathy and say the mechanism is empathy, I never have seen a reason not to call it the same thing in apes. My view on all these things, because people always object to anthropomorphism, but if you have an animal that is 98.5% identical in terms of DNA to us, you have to make the opposite assumption. Have to, people who want to claim that this is something else than empathy, they will have to prove me that it's something else than empathy. And so we studied that in bonobos who live in a sanctuary, and it's sort of sad that it needs to exist because uh, there's bushmeat hunting in Africa, and uh, the poachers, they kill the adult bonobos, and they try to sell their meat. Uh, they try to sell the, the babies, 
um, alive on the market. And then they're confiscated, they're brought to the sanctuary, and they're raised by humans, and then put in a colony like this. So these are basically all traumatized orphans, except for, as you see, there's a few babies on the backs here, except for the few that are born in the colony. And so we, we can sort of compare these two. It's a very interesting comparison, because in humans we do these comparisons. We look at Romanian orphanages, and we look at how these children are. We know that they are emotionally very disturbed. They have very little empathy for others, which we think is because they cannot regulate their emotions the same way that uh, children who are raised by, uh, by their own mothers can. And so we have this comparison also in our study of the bonobos. Uh, and just to give you one data point of it, what we find is that juveniles do a lot more consolation than adults. We think adults become more selective and that the, that the basic process of emotional contagion is present in all these, uh, these, these bonobos. But the big difference is that the, um, the juveniles who are raised by their own mothers, as you see, uh, they do far more than anybody else. So we, have only, we have only juveniles for this. But uh, just as in the, in the Romanian orphanage studies, um, children who are raised by their own mothers, they have more empathy for others than children who are uh, basically traumatized. Now, we found uh, consolation in elephants. Basically, I think consolation behavior, responding to the distress of somebody else, being affected by the distress and responding in a positive way to the distress of others with a calming behavior, I think is universal in all the mammals. All the mammals have that kind of behavior. And so we, we did a study on elephants. And then recently, we did a study that we published in Science just a few weeks ago of um, the prairie vole. The prairie vole is interesting because the prairie vole is monogamous rodent. That's why we have this funny little thing here going. So they are monogamous, so the male and the female are very attached to each other, as opposed to some other voles that don't have that uh, sort of social system. And what we did in this particular study was done by James Burkett, as it's a neuroscience study. I'm not going to go into the details of the neuroscience, but we, we do on these voles neuroscience that you cannot do on an elephant or on a chimpanzee. It would never, never work and never be allowed even. Uh, and so we can look at the mechanism behind the empathy, uh, which is an important part because uh, until now, no one had really looked at that. And just to give you the results, and this is more like for the, the insight for the few neuroscientists who are in the room, uh, we found very strong evidence for the empathy hypothesis as opposed to any other hypothesis. For example, if you have the idea that maybe uh, animals learn to respond in a particular way because it has given them benefits in the past or something like this. Well, that doesn't work for the vol study because we, each vol was tested only one time. So there's no learning involved. We also found that um, the meadow vol, which is a, a very closely related species but is not monogamous, they didn't show the same responses. We also showed the same bias that I already talked about, is they show this response only to siblings and, and mates and not to anybody else, not to strangers. Uh, we also found, uh, this is evidence for emotional contagion, is that the cortisol levels or the stress hormones of the observer were the same as of the partner. And, and so th there's a matching form of distress going on. And then we also found that oxytocin is involved. If you block the oxytocin receptors, um, the, the response disappears. And so very strong evidence of, at neural mechanism level that it's an empathy-like mechanism, very similar to, similar to the human empathy mechanism. And so now we have also some neuroscience evidence for that. 
Now, to get to the cognitive part of empathy, this is the part where you take the perspective of somebody else, where you try to imagine the situation of somebody else. And I think some animals can do that. Apes can do it, dolphins, elephants, the large-brained mammals can do that. And so this allows us, uh, this, this, um, this, it depends on a self-other distinction, which we think correlates with mere self-recognition. And that's why in child development, it comes up at about the age of two years, which is also about the age that children start to recognize themselves in the mirror. And why, uh, why in species, and this has been speculated 25 years ago, species who recognize themselves in the mirror may have more complex forms of empathy than species that don't. And, and so uh, one of the pieces of evidence for this perspective taking is what I call targeted helping which is helping based on you understanding the situation of somebody else. And not many animals do that. You may think that Lassie the dog had an understanding of, but Lassie the dog was 25 different dogs who were trained to do things. And, and, and veterinarians have recently tested dogs on their understanding of situations. So one of the experiments sort of funny is the veterinarian is in the room, a bookcase falls over him and he's stuck under the bookcase. What does the dog do? The dog licks your face. Which is good, but not particularly helpful. Um, now here, look at this case. This is bonobos in the wild. These are wild bonobos, uh, where a female has a snare around her finger, a metal snare, very dangerous. She may lose her fingers, she may lose her whole hand, and this happens actually quite regularly nowadays. So everyone is very concerned, as you see, everyone is watching this, and this old female is trying to get rid of the snare, and that requires a technical understanding of how this thing works, and it requires that she understands how serious this situation is. This is not some trivial thing. This is absolutely serious, and you need to get rid of it. There's now actually some observations in gorillas recently where gorillas have dismantled snares that they encounter in the forest. They find them, they find these poacher snares, and they take them apart. That's, a, that's very interesting. But in this case, that's what I call targeted helping. It requires an understanding of the situation of somebody else. And we finally have now experiments on it. So in my book, The Age of Empathy, I give many anecdotes of targeted helping in, in let's say, dolphins and apes and so on. Um, but we now have an experiment, which was run in, in Kyoto, where they would put two chimpanzees together. And the chimpanzee in front has a choice between seven different tools. The chimpanzee in the back needs one particular tool, let's say a, a straw to suck up juice or a rake to rake something in. And the one in the front needs to look at the, the situation of the, the other chimp and judge that situation and then pick the right tool that belongs to that situation and be willing to do that. He's not getting anything for it. Be willing to give the tool to the other, and they do all of that. So, so the chimpanzee showed what is called targeted helping, which shows that they can take the perspective of somebody else. In their eagerness to drink, the smaller adopted calf is shoved over the edge and into the mud. Now the danger of a buffalo stampede is even greater than before. The thick mud sucks at the calf's back legs. Following the matriarch's lead, they all climb into the mud to help.
desperate attempts to break down the bank only make the problem worse. Females combine efforts using tusks and trunks like shovels to keep the calf from drowning while another digs around. Together the two females squeeze and push at the calf. The suction underneath is suddenly released and the calf is free at last. So you see very nicely here the sort of the two channels of empathy. You see the emotional contagion and, and the body channel because these females are very emotionally activated. They have their ears out and their tails out, they're rumbling. So they're very activated, but that's not sufficient. They need to understand the situation of the calf and they need to know that they need to get underneath of it and push it up and they need to do it cooperatively, which is even more complex. And so uh, th that's the cognitive part, the sort of perspective-taking part of uh, empathy. And so you see sort of the full-blown ver version of empathy here. Uh, as we can also see in apes and in dolphins, uh, there's not a whole lot of animals, I think, who can do this. But uh, this full-blown version of, of empathy is found in the animal kingdom. Now, to move from this, from emotional contagion, which I think is universal in all the mammals, and, and there's good evidence in birds also. So, all the mammals have this. To move from there to targeted helping, which requires you to understand the situation of somebody else, we think it requires a stronger self-other distinction, and that's why it correlates with uh, mirror self-recognition. And so that's how we got interested in the mirror, and this is what a chimp does with the mirror. This female has a, an, an injury on her head, and she's using our iPhone as a mirror. Uh, and so she's, she's using it to inspect her little injury, this is very special. Your average dog doesn't do this. And if your dog does this, you're going to call me. <laughs> this is very special. And there's very few animals who can do this. So that's mirror self-recognition, is that you connect the mirror image with yourself, as we do every morning. But um, chimps do the same thing. This is what a monkey does. So what you're going to see now is a capuchin monkey with a mirror. So the monkey is very interested. But the monkey doesn't use the mirror to inspect itself. So for example, if I walk up to my chimpanzees with sunglasses on, let's say, on a summer day in Georgia, uh, the chimps will all walk up to my sunglasses and look in them. That's a mirror for them. They, they, they use them as a mirror. The females will turn around to look at their behinds which the males never do. The females are interested, they're, they're behind is very important, but for the males it's not, not so much. And, and they all will open their mouths and look inside of their mouths, which is a part of your body which you feel all the time, but you can never see otherwise. Uh, now monkeys never, I've had this capuchin colony for 25 years, monkeys never do anything like this. So there's a huge difference between animals who recognize themselves and animals who don't. And in connection with the empathy hypothesis, we decided we need to test elephants. Elephants had been tested on mirrors and had failed the mark test on in mirrors. 
but they had been tested, believe it or not, on a mirror of about this size. Now, what does an elephant see? An elephant sees probably a lot of gray moving around in the mirror, um, but we decided to give them a real size mirror. And this is Josh Plotnik, who does the elephant studies. This is me on Pepsi, the elephant, and Pepsi is the star performer in the next video, and so this will show you the response of an elephant to the mirror. So here's Pepsi, marked on the left side. On the other side of the head is a sham mark. You cannot see it. It's the same sort of paint, but without the color in it, that we put on the, on the other side. So here's Pepsi uh, is feeling the mark. Now this is on a different day where Pepsi has been marked on the right and the sham mark is now on the other side of the head. He's tasting it. Now look what he does at the end here. He opens his mouth to look inside. So just like the apes, he wants to look inside his mouth. So, so the mark test for him is just a starting point to explore other things. And, and so as a result of these studies on, on elephants and apes and so on, we believe there is support for the ideas that complex forms of helping and targeted helping and complex forms of empathy uh, connect somehow with the sense of self, which we also test with the mirror test. Now this brings me to a very different topic, cooperation, and now we're getting more into the direction of, let's say, reciprocity and cooperation and the sense of fairness and so on. And we did actually a cooperation test on elephants, and I'm, I'm not sure I have that here, but I'll show that also to you. So this is one of the first cooperation tests, like a hundred years ago at the Yerkes Primate Center. Uh, uh, can, we, can we dim the lights a little bit for this? Because this is a very poor quality video uh, that is so old that you would actually need a piano music with it, I think. Um, and so what you're gonna see here are two juvenile chimps who are bringing in a heavy box. The box is too heavy for one of them. So they need to work together. They need to be coordinated to bring it in. Now what they do, is they feed one of the chimps. So one of the chimps has got a lot of food, is not interested in the task anymore. Now, now look at what happens at the very end here. The one on the right basically takes everything. <laughs> so, so there's two interesting things about this. First of all, the chimp on the right has a full understanding that he needs to partner. So there's a full understanding that this is a cooperative task that you cannot do alone. The second part is that the partner is willing to work, even though the partner doesn't take most of the food. The partner's not really interested in the food. So why would that be? Reciprocity. So these two live together probably, it's two young females. They probably live together, they're good buddies and they help each other and they do that on a reciprocal basis. And so reciprocity is part of that story. And uh, it also shows that not everything needs to have an incentive, which, which is true for the social relationships of many animals. So we set up recently a cooperation task 
with chimpanzees, which was a bit more complicated than this because we did it in the open group. And this is because people had claimed that chimpanzees are so competitive, uh, they, they have trouble suppressing competition in order to cooperate, which was a sort of strange statement because in the field, chimpanzees do a lot of cooperation. So we decided to set up cooperation on an apparatus where there was lots of competition possible because we did not isolate two chimps or three chimps. We did it in the whole group, and so everyone was present, the alpha male, the alpha female. There were individuals who could kick you away from the apparatus and take your food. Uh, Freeloading was possible. And so to see what would happen, and if, if these stories were right, that chimpanzees are too competitive for this kind of stuff, uh, we would have had a, a lot of bickering chimpanzees and very little cooperation, but we actually saw the opposite. We saw enormous amounts of cooperation going on. Now, there was some competition. Here you see a female who is trying to drag another female away from the apparatus, and she's starting to drag more. <laughs> and, and, and you can also see there's some resistance here. Uh, so, but this is low level. Uh, chimpanzees have teeth, and they can bite, and they can make injuries. And this is all, in my opinion, very mild competition that was going on. And we didn't see anything serious, and we saw enormous amounts of cooperation. So this is what we saw. 3,000 acts of successful cooperation. So basically, the chimps were non-stop cooperating. They were undeterred by the competition, uh, they and, and they had ways of discouraging freeloading, such as punishing the freeloaders. So let me show you a video of this setup. That we, At the moment, we are analyzing all the data, which is uh, thousands of cases. Here you have the apparatus. In this case, it's for two chimps. They need to look at each other. They cannot do the task because they have to pull at exactly the same moment. And that's why you see that they're looking at each other. We never taught them anything. We gave them the apparatus and the food. And they had to figure out by themselves how to do this thing. Now you have three chimps. It's more complex, of course. They're going to be bringing in food, the three of them, and again, looking at each other in order to do this. Uh, now you're going to see some of these little competitions that we had. The alpha female walks away. A young female moves in, starts to pull. Uh, as soon as she gets something, the female, the alpha female comes back to try to steal her food. Um, this is a female. The female is going to get rid of this male. <laughs> She's not dominant over the male, but she has ways of getting rid of him. So that's what we call mild competition, really. It's really nothing serious. And then we had these very interesting cases. Here you have two females who come from a long distance. They come together to the apparatus. It is as if they have agreed on going to work together. And we don't know how to communicate that to each other. We sometimes three females even. So, so they, they come from a different building in a different area. They come from far away. They walk together to the thing, and they start working together. And we don't know how to communicate these things. But basically what we found is that chimpanzees are highly cooperative animals. They have no trouble with competition. They have ways of suppressing it and dealing with it. And, and so this whole story that humans are uniquely cooperative, which you, which you hear a lot in, among anthropologists and behavioral economists, that that's the sort of the mantra at the moment. Humans are uniquely cooperative. If you look at the animal kingdom, I mean, cooperation is all over the place everywhere, basically. Now, in elephants, we started to test this. Now, elephants are very difficult animals to work with because they're so dangerous. And, and also, because it, it, if you want to do a cooperative task, it's impossible to design 
let's say, a box that is too heavy for one elephant. So, so you, you have to have something else. And so what we had in this case is, is a, an apparatus with a rope around it, a single rope. If you pull on this side of the rope, it disappears on that side. And so the two elephants have to grab the rope at exactly the same time to do the thing. And then after that, we, we make it more difficult for them. We're going to hold back one of the elephants to see what the other one does. Does the other one understand that he needs the partner for the task? In Thailand, Dr. Josh Plotnik and his team have devised a unique challenge to find out. Using a sliding table, some rope, and an irresistible reward. So here's the problem. The elephants need to be able to pull the table closer to gain access to the sunflower seeds. And they need the rope to do that. But if only one of them pulls the rope, then they both go hungry. Can they work together to solve a novel problem? From cop. And more importantly, do they actually understand the concept behind it? The first time the elephants are shown this task, they fail. But this is a necessary part of the learning process. And something is definitely going on in there. A four kilogram brain is working it out. The first thing I think that they learn, and there has to be some learning involved in this, this is a task they've never experienced before. Um, the first thing is that they've learned that their partner needs to be there. And I think in some ways they've learned not only does their partner need to be there, but their partner needs to be doing something. It doesn't take them long to figure it out. But Josh needs to prove that their brain power allows them to understand what's going on. So he releases one elephant before the other in the hope it'll wait for its partner. This moment of waiting is key. Josh gets the answer he was looking for. What you're seeing is that the elephants are thinking about cooperation. Um, and that actually demonstrates how smart and how well adapted these animals are. It's all very well proving that animals understand cooperation. But how does it help them to survive in the wild? So this, this experiment, uh, the cooperative pulling, has been done with uh, many different species. Chimpanzees can do it, elephants can do it, but most animals cannot do this. And that's because a behavior that has been rewarded many times, you pull at a rope and you get food, now all of a sudden needs to be suppressed in order to wait for your partner. And so elephants have the kind of emotional control and understanding to do this, but not a whole lot of animals do. So we started testing uh, the pro-social tendencies of the apes uh, because um, in the literature, again, it was argued that only humans care about the well-being of others. 
So, so after the phase in which we were all selfies, we had selfish genes and we were completely selfish and competitive, came a phase in which it was claimed that only humans are altruistic. The rest of the animal kingdom, unfortunately, doesn't have any of that. And so uh, this, people had concluded that uh, chimpanzees are indifferent to the welfare of others. They had concluded this on the basis of experiments with chimps. But the experiments used an apparatus that even we, looking at the pictures of the apparatus, we had no clue how this thing worked. And I think the chimps had no clue how this thing worked. And, and so how can you really test something that they don't fully understand? And so we decided to do a test on pro-social tendencies without using an apparatus. Uh, because we, had, we doubted that they fully understood everything. And, and we do that at the Yerkes Primate Center. This is actually my office up here. I have an office that overlooks chimpanzees. The chimps live outdoors in areas like this. And we call them into a building to do tests for maybe half an hour or maybe an hour. And then we send them back into the group. So these are all socially housed chimpanzees who know each other. Uh, and then we bring them in a room and we set up a test. And so here you have two chimpanzees and I'll explain the test with a video. So what we have here is a test done by Vicky Horner on pro-social tendencies in chimpanzees. We give them tokens. They know that they can exchange tokens for food, but they don't know what the two colors do. At the beginning of the test, they don't know nothing about these two colors. So they have to figure that out. They have a partner sitting next to them. There's a little table outside, and I'll show you how that works. So this chimp, who has uh, 30, 30 tokens in a bucket, she's going to give us a red token which is the selfish token. We accept it, we put it on the table to remind them of their choice. We feed only the chimpanzee on the right who made the choice. The one on the left is the partner. And the partner is going to express, express her opinion about this. She has an opinion. So the partner is fully aware. And then we get a pro-social choice. And we do this 30 times in a row. And by the end of the test, of course, the, the chimps know what these tokens do. So now she gives a green token. We, again, we put it on the table. In this case, we feed both chimpanzees. So that's, that's the difference. We put tokens back into the bucket. We want to keep the same number of tokens in there. And, and that's really all it is. There's no apparatus. It's very easy to understand. You don't need to understand an apparatus. You only need to see what is my partner getting food, yes or no. That's actually why the food is wrapped in paper. The food is wrapped in paper so that they can even hear what the part, that the partner is eating. Because they don't always pay attention to it. That's the whole experiment. So the one who makes the choices, the chimp who makes the token choices, for that chimp, it doesn't really matter which color she picks. She gets fed every time, every single time she gets food. So the only difference for her is, does my partner get something or my partner gets nothing? That's the only difference. And then we see which token they prefer. And they tend to prefer the pro-social token. So uh, this is what normally happens. This is what happens if the partner draws attention to herself. The partner is climbing around or vocalizing or looking at the other. Uh, then the token choices go up and they become very pro-social. This is what happens if the partner puts pressure on them. The, partners, the partner starts screaming and yelling at them or spitting water or banging on the window. Uh, then they don't do it anymore. <laughs> they, they don't want to encourage that kind of behavior, I think. 
Uh, and this is what they do uh, when there's no partner. And so we were the first ones to demonstrate that chimpanzees actually do care about the well-being of others. And now there are five, at least five, other experiments. I showed you already the one with the tools, the Yamamoto study, which was also one on pro-social behavior. There's a very nice study on bonobos where they give a bonobo a whole pile of fruit. He, the bonobo can eat all the fruit by himself, but he has also learned that he can open a door and behind that door is another bonobo. And what they usually do is they open the door, they let the other one in, and they share the food with the other one. And so there are now several studies. Uh, and, and so this whole story that only humans care about the well-being of others is, is now off the table, basically. Now, the last experiment I want to show you is, has become very famous. And that's because we live in a time where income inequality is sort of the major political issue. And so we started doing studies on income inequality, not, not, not for political reasons. <laughs> we, we have been accused of being communists because we found fairness in monkeys. But um, I, I don't see that connection. I think our monkeys are highly capitalist in many ways. Um, but anyway, we started with Sarah Brosnan doing an experiment on capuchin monkeys because we had noticed that they pay attention to what somebody else is getting. So it's not just the normal learning paradigm with rats and pigeons is you work very hard and you get food for it and you have schedules for it and you can have delays and, and the effort can be variable. But it's all done with one individual getting food out of an apparatus or something. And we notice that our monkeys, if they're sitting side by side, they pay attention to what the other one is getting. So we started doing experiments on that. And so we set up a task that is very simple, and we could give both monkeys cucumber for the task, or we could give both monkeys grapes for the task. In that case, there's really no inequality. But if you give one grapes and the other one cucumber, and grapes are 10 times better than cucumber for them, uh, because, because our monkeys' preferences match perfectly with the prices in the supermarket. <laughs> uh, and so they, uh, they go for the grapes. And so that's the experiment. And let me first show you the data on this. Um, if both get cucumber, they do this task 25 times in a row. They do it basically all the time, 100% of the time. So if they both get cucumber, and even though that's a miserable food for them, it's just water basically, but um, they, they work for that. Now, if you give grape to the partner, and you're still getting cucumber, uh, they're going to drop. They, they do only 50% of the time. So they're not highly motivated anymore. They're still getting cucumber, which was a good food before, but it's not so good anymore. Uh, and then if you give the grape to the partner that's on the right, the partner doesn't even need to work for the grape, gets it for free, then they really don't want to do it anymore. So this, this means that effort is, is part of the picture. And effort is, of course, also part of the human sense of fairness. If, if I have a salary that is twice your salary, and I do the same job and have the same experience, um, you may think that's very unfair. Well, I may think it's okay, but you may think it's very unfair. Now, if I work much harder than you, I, I don't take vacations and I work day and night, it's actually fair. And so humans take effort into account also. I'm going to show you this little video that has now been seen by 25 million people on the internet, and, and that's because people use it to send to, let's say, the, the head of their department to show that, <laughs> that they need a race or something like that. And, and what you're going to see is a monkey on the left who gets cucumber, and the one on the right gets grape for the task. Let me see. The monkey on the left gives us a rock, that's the, the whole task, gets a piece of cucumber. The first piece is still fine. The first piece is eaten. The one on the right needs to give us a rock. 
and gets a grape for that. The one on the left looks at that. They're gonna give us a rock, gets a piece of cucumber. The one on the right gets a grape again. Needs to give us a rock. Gets cucumber again. Now, when, when we published this first, we didn't use the word fairness. We, we talked about inequity aversion. Uh, but of course, the media immediately translated this as a sense of fairness in monkeys. We, we got, I remember, we got one angry email from a philosopher who said it was impossible that monkeys had a sense of fairness because the sense of fairness was discovered during the French Revolution. <laughs> so, so, so now, I, I mentioned to you that some people have a top-down view of morality. That's a typical top-down thinking because it basically says that a bunch of old guys in Paris, they thought that maybe fairness was a good thing and they applied the principle in, in society. So it's really thinking like it comes from thought and reason and logic and that's really not how things work. The sense of fairness doesn't come from there. The sense of fairness comes from this kind of reactions that we share with the monkeys. And, and it's very hard, people always say you need, to, you need to be avoiding anthropomorphism. It's impossible not to be anthropomorphic and seeing this because the emotions are very similar and the expression is very similar to, to the ones that we have. But I usually would reassure and console these philosophers because I'm a very empathic person. <laughs> and I, I would say, well, you know, the monkeys have a very egocentric sense of fairness. It's, it's not really the same as what we have because they are very much preoccupied with getting less. They don't care the one who gets more, the one who gets the grapes. It's not really affected by it. It doesn't really matter to that. And, and everyone was very happy with that view until we started testing chimpanzees. And so Sarah started testing chimpanzees. And we found that in chimpanzees, the one who gets the grape sometimes refuses the grape till the other one also gets a grape. So now we got very close to the human sense of fairness. And then we started testing chimps on the ultimatum game, which until then, not now anymore, because now the, chimp, the chimps have passed the test, but until then were the test, the ultimate test of the human sense of fairness. And the chimps did exactly the same as five to seven-year-old children. They tried to equalize outcomes in the ultimatum game. And so now if you ask me, what is the difference in the sense of fairness of humans and chimpanzees, I don't know anymore. I, I don't know if there's a fundamental difference. And I would argue that that's because the principle of cooperation is the same for us and for them. And I think the sense of fairness relates to equal outcomes for equal work in a cooperative society. And that's also why the present situation of income inequality is really worrisome because income inequality tends to undermine cooperation. It it's a very under, has a very undermining effect. But anyway, the last thing I want to show you is this experiment conducted on children. So mothers do all these experiments that they do on monkeys on their own children. Uh, and it's the sort of thing that I cannot do because I will never get permission to do what, what the mothers do. Uh, but um, this is a, a mother who sends me a video of her two kids that she gave different amounts of cookies. So the one on, on the left gets a whole cookie, the one on the right gets a half cookie. Cookies!
You want cookies? Daniel, here's one cookie. Anna, this one's for you. Come on. Really? So, so you see, fundamentally, the same sort of moral emotions, so to speak, are present here. Uh, even though I would think that since, since the girl is only half the size of the boy, half a cookie would be fine for her. I've heard stories of people, because this same thing has been done on dogs now. I've, I've heard stories of people who had a very tiny little dog and a huge dog, and they would need to feed them the same amount because they got upset if they could dif different amounts. The little one would get upset getting less than the big one. So... It's a sort of general principle, and I think it relates to cooperative animals. Uh, we, we would predict, Cyrus now testing it on many different species, we predict that cooperative animals have this sensitivity for reward distribution, whereas solitary animals, let's say the, the cat, the domestic cat, maybe doesn't have that because it doesn't need it. So Darwin was right. I, I didn't say much about humans, but basically uh, human morality is emotionally driven. And there are many gut feelings involved in human morality. Also, if you, if you put moral dilemmas to people and you put them in a brain scanner, we find that uh, emotional areas of the brain are very activated. So it's not all reasoning and logic. In the prefrontal cortex, there's, there's a lot more going on that is very emotional in humans. And in the primates, we find reciprocity and fairness. We find empathy, consolation. We find pro-social tendencies. And so I would basically argue that um, you don't need religion to be mor moral. I think religion may have a positive role. It's possible. And, and that's something that I discuss in my book, uh, The Bonobo and the Atheist. Uh, so religion is not necessarily excluded from the domain of morality, but morality is much older than religion uh, and, 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 and is basically a product of evolution. And I thank all the students who work with me on all these projects, and I thank you for your attention. So there is time for questions, and if you have questions, you are asked to Can you use a microphone. Hi, Franz. I was just curious. There was the one video of the um, mother, I think, that uh, um, bit the baby, and, or the, the older baby, and it screamed as if it had been severely traumatized, and then it got comforted by the other one, and very quickly it seemed to calm down and just walk away as if nothing had happened. <clears throat> I was just curious if you find they might be consciously exaggerating <laughs> the trauma to get yeah. more, more attention. Yeah, so, so uh, apes are very well known for, for tantrums. So uh, especially at the time that they're being weaned, this, this was not a mother, by the way, but when the, at the time they're being weaned, they approach mom, and mom puts an arm over her breast, and and then they pout for a little while, and then they throw an enormous tantrum, and they can scream for 10 minutes. They scream their heads off for 10 minutes. And um, uh, females sometimes give in, of course, and, and, and then they, they get nursed. But, but in, in, in sort of the weaning period, it takes about three months uh, that gets less and less done. And then, yeah, they exaggerate enormously. It's a bit like human children, really. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you have any thoughts on a uh, like bottom-up explanation of religion and why it keeps emerging and what is its role, basically. Yeah, religion, 
I, I'm, I'm sort of upset about the neo-atheists that we have at the moment who basically blame religion for everything that's bad in the world and, and think that we can do away with religion. We can just throw it out. Um, you, you know, this has been tried actually under Stalin and under Pol Pot uh, and under Mao and it has not been a good experiment to throw out religion. So, so I think that that's really not the option. And what puzzles me more, um, rather than saying religion is bad and religion has a lot of, um, uh, creates a lot of conflict in society, what puzzles me more is why all humans all over the world have religion. There's really no exception to it. All humans have some sort of religion. And uh, so the question for the biologist is, what does it do for society that is somehow constructive? I, I do agree with the neo-atheists that it also does a lot of things that are not constructive. And religion is often at the root of conflict between societies, between groups. Um, but um, the thinking in the field of religion at the moment, of evolution of religion, but I'm not sure how well supported this is, but the thinking is that when societies got bigger, when we settled down and we, we had not just societies of 100 people or 200 people, but we started forming societies, this is this like 12,000 years ago, forming societies with several thousand people or maybe 100,000 people. At that point, we could not maintain the sort of moral systems that we see in the primates where everyone knows everyone. I know what you have done for me. You know what I have done for you. You have a reputation. When you get um, 10,000 individuals together, you cannot do that anymore because you don't recognize everybody. And that's the point at which religion became important because then we installed gods who kept an eye on us and we installed, installed rules that you had to follow and if you didn't follow, you would go to hell or whatever. And, and so we, we started to implement a different system to enforce the morality that we had in the small scale societies. So that's one line of thought in, in that regard. And if you're interested in that, you should read a book by Noren Zion, which is called Big Gods. And it's all about that hypothesis, that big societies require big gods, basically. Um, hi. Um, I had two questions. One is, um, so for example, when a giraffe neonate is born, it falls two meters to the ground with a loud thud, and it just runs around immediately. <laughs> but in a human, it's not that case at all. Your uh, newborns are totally helpless. Do you see any correlation, and is there any way to disentangle uh, vulnerability of the neonate with the amount of cooperation behavior that happens in a social group? Like, do we have morality because if we didn't, our <laughs> neonates would be completely vulnerable and the species would... Yeah, but out. I think there's many animals where neonates are vulnerable, like, um, I'm not sure that, that that requires a moral system. That seems like a bit... Uh, overdone if, if, you know, the moral system is entirely for the neonates. So, for example, in dolphins, there's, there's help between the females when, the, when a, a calf is born. Uh, elephants, elephant babies are very vulnerable and very small and, and walking between all these big legs that are very heavy. Um, and so uh, I think that, that is not a condition that is unique to the human, to have a, a vulnerable offspring. Okay, and then the second was that you showed a quote by Richard Dawkins about how we were unique in our ability to escape the mm -hmm. selfishness of natural selection. But my understanding of his book was also that ideas themselves, like morality and cooperation, were also now acting as replicators on the basis of the human brain. So I was wondering what your thoughts on memetics were. Um, yeah, the meme, the meme ID. Uh, I've worked for a long time in, in animal culture. We, we did a lot of studies on animal culture, and, and cultural studies is basically 
uh, transmission of knowledge and transmission of habits. The meme idea has never caught on in that literature. The, the, the idea of a meme, it's sort of interesting, but it's also fairly superficial, and it has really never... Uh, it's used on the internet for a meme that spreads and things like that, but um, I'm not sure it's very valuable if you study the transmission of knowledge and habits in, in, in animals or humans. You um, talk about psychopathy and other primate groups and how it's dealt with. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that we have that. Pe people have proposed it on occasion. When something terrible happens, for example, in Gombe Stream, there was a female chimpanzee who killed the, the infant of another female. And, well, males do that. We call that infanticide, and we have a whole evolutionary story why that exists. But for females, we had no such story. And so that female was immediately declared a psychopath until another female did the same thing at a different place and another female at another place. It's a very rare thing, but it's happened multiple times. And now we think maybe there's a reason, an evolutionary reason maybe has to do with female-female competition or whatever. Um, so, but, but psychopath in the primates, I, I'm sure it occurs. If in humans it is maybe, what is it, 1% of the population. If I work with, let's say, 30 chimps, what is my chance of, and that's a lot of chimps compared to most other people, what is my chance of finding such an individual? It's maybe very low. So, so the, there are certain things like schizophrenia or psychopathy that, that may occur, that, but we don't have the population size with humans. You, you're talking about millions, and then we, you go to a clinic where these people are sort of collected, but we don't have that really. So a lot of what you talked about seems to correlate uh, moral systems among animals with social behavior and with high intelligence. And I know we see non-mammalian species exhibit both of those traits. Do we see these same kinds of moral or ethical behaviors in non-mammalian species? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question. So we think that the origin of empathy is maternal care. So that's sort of the general view in, in people who work on the, in that area is that maternal care required, whether you're a mouse or an elephant, it requires that you pay attention to the emotions of your offspring. So if your offspring is cold or hungry or in pain, you need to pay attention to it. That explains two things about empathy. That explains why females have more of it than males, and it explains why oxytocin is involved in it, which is really a sort of maternal hormone. And so the neural circuitry for empathy may have started with maternal care and then it spread to other relationships so that also males can have empathy and so that also in other relationships empathy may occur. Now, if that story is true, then we should look at the birds and there's actually three or four bird studies now on empathy. We should look at the birds. They have biparental care and uh, maybe the sex difference would not exist in their case. Many birds are monogamous, have a biparental care. And so people are now studying uh, empathy in birds. And then in, the, in other species, uh, there is parental care in crocodilians. So alligators and crocodiles, they take care of their offspring. And they also have a distress call, which the young ones have if they're in distress. And the females respond to that. And so if, if, there may be a common ancestor, let's say, to to the mammals and the birds that also have empathy, which is a reptilian uh, type uh, empathy. And I'm involved in the moment, believe it or not, I'm involved in a study on empathy in fish. I'm a very big fish lover myself. I have enormous tanks with fish. I always joke that empathy is not really their strong point, 
Um, but now I'm involved in, in, in a study on empathy and vision. And so I would not exclude anything because almost everything that we find in animals, theory of mind or tool use or planning for the future, all sorts of fancy characteristics that we find in animals, uh, 10 years later we find it in other animals. And it's not limited to the primates. It's a, so for example, at the moment, I don't know if you know that, but the corvids, the, the crows and the ravens and the, the whole crow family is coming up as tool users and is very smart. And, and they, they are, they're offering competition to the primates. They have a lot of characteristics, mental characteristics, that we had assumed only the primates would have. And so to answer your question, um, I don't rule out anything. I, I don't think it's restricted to, to mammals. And, and if oxytocin is at the root of it, for example, oxytocin is not limited to the mammals. So. Um, you mentioned for a lot of your studies that the, uh, the bonobos and the, uh, the primates you worked on were uh, housed together and were uh, in the same in-group um, and therefore were collab collaborating um, and had a sense of fairness together. Did you ever try uh, on strangers similar studies and, and try to find conditions in which monkeys uh, were uh, not known to each other previously in which those conditions they collaborated? Yeah. We have never done that with chimps. Chimps are so xenophobic and so angry when they meet a member of another group that that would be a disaster. So, so we never wanted to put them through the stress and we certainly we cannot have creating fights that are potentially fatal, you know, so we cannot do that. So with chimps, we've never done that. With bonobos, actually bonobos are very um, open to uh, members of the other group. So, so bonobo groups in the wild, for example, they mingle, which is something that chimps cannot do. Mingles kill, uh, chimps kill each other, but um, the bonobos mingle. And so people have done experiments where bonobos can share food with members of another group and can be pro-social, and, and they do that kind of things. We've recently done with monkeys, a very, with capuchin monkeys, an interesting experiment, where we put two strangers and they could pull at an apparatus to get food and uh, they did all sorts of cooperative things with strangers in that case. And so I think the, the many primates are biased. They are more pro-social towards members of their own group, but um, they don't rule out that kind of relationships with other groups, except maybe for chimps. I don't know how good humans are. There's lots of, <laughs> there's a lot of evidence that humans are not particularly good at that. Please uh, join me in uh, thanking France for a wonderful one. Thank you. Maybe you should announce that I will sign books. And uh, France is going to sign his book outside for those of you interested.